In Acts chapter 1, Luke is clear that following Jesus' death was a resurrection. And following his resurrection was 40 days where Jesus was seen by his followers. He taught them many things during this time period before he ultimately ascended from the Mount of Olives to heaven. Now, before he ascended, he left kind of two tidbits for his followers. First, he gave them a generalized commission. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Luke simplifies what we know as the Great Commission that's found in all four Gospels. He simplifies it. He condenses it to this one simple statement. You shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And no, Jesus isn't telling them to do anything. He says, you will be witnesses. You see, the Great Commission isn't that we go anywhere to do anything. It's who we are, living where we are, being a witness. We are a witness. We don't do witnessing like the Beatitudes. It's a manifestation of the work that God is doing in our lives through the power of the Holy Spirit. But in addition to that, we also see that there was somewhat of a prophetic nature of what Jesus was saying. You shall be witnesses. It was prophetic. And thus we find here in uh, Acts 1 verse 8, a kind of a blueprint, an outline for the book of Acts. Chapters 1 through 7 is Christians going into Jerusalem to be witnesses. And then we find in verses uh, in chapters 8 through 12 that Christians are going into Judea and Samaria to also be witnesses. And then Acts 13 through 28, we find Christians going to the ends of the earth. And so this generalized commission is something that we're to be, not necessarily something we're to do. And in addition to that, it's prophetic. We also see, though, that Jesus, aside from leaving them with a generalized commission, we noted that he left them with specific instructions, didn't he? Jesus told them to not depart from Jerusalem, but to what? Wait to receive the power of the Holy Spirit. He tells them to go and wait for the Holy Spirit to be poured out to come upon them. And Jesus, as we noted, gave them these instructions because the reality is that it's impossible to live the Christian life apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. They needed the Spirit for purification, so that their lives would be made holy, more like Jesus, but they needed the Spirit for empowering to fulfill the Great Commission. I hope you understand that the key to living the sanctified life, the life Jesus has called you and I to live, and the only way that we can fulfill his commission to be witnesses is to, as Paul would later say, walk in what? In the Spirit, so that we will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. So that's Acts 1. Then we get to Acts 2. Two comes after one. That's logical. And Luke continues his narrative by including three important developments. Obviously, on Pentecost, we find the fruition to what they were waiting for. The power of the Holy Spirit is poured out upon the church. We also see in chapter two, the church experience as a result of the outpouring of the Spirit, incredible, awesome growth. 3,000 people are added to their ranks in one day. But we also noted that Now with a church of 3,120 people, that the leadership needed to to define the functional purpose of the church. And we see it established by the Holy Spirit. According to Acts 2 verse 42, the church focused on what? On growing the church? On adding to the church? No, that was Jesus' job. Rather, the church focused on nurturing the spiritual development of believers as well as equipping them for the ministry. And how did they do it? They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine 
and fellowship, or koinonia, life-sharing, breaking of bread, communion, and in prayers. And now in Acts 3, Luke is clear that this outpouring of the Holy Spirit, this God-given power was working through the church, not on a daily basis. The work of the Holy Spirit was not limited to the day of Pentecost, but now we see the Spirit working through the church on a daily basis, not a one-time occasion. Luke here in chapter 3 focuses our attention onto two significant characters. He introduces, he focuses, he hones in on Peter and John because these two men not only exemplify what being a witness actually looks like, and not only do they exemplify what it really means to walk in the Spirit, not only do we find in these two men an example for us personally on how we're to live, but we also see in the unlikely pairing of this dynamic duo a demonstration of how the Spirit can take different people of different age groups and different personalities and bring them together for unity and community. I want to start by asking just a simple question. If I were to ask you this morning, who is the most predominant character of the book of Acts? You might be inclined, at least up until this point, to say, well, Peter been included in all three chapters up until this point. I mean, good grief, he becomes the first pope, so obviously he's got to be a significant feature, significant character. Some of you might say, well, maybe John. Others would say Paul. But if you look closely at the book of Acts, you will find that the most predominant character is rather the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, when it comes to the book of Acts, is more active than any other character. Throughout all 28 chapters, we have seen and will see the Spirit directing, resisting, empowering the church to accomplish the work of Jesus. You know, we've kind of titled our, our series here. We've kind of titled the book of Acts as the acts of Jesus through the church. But it would be wise to make an amendment that it is the acts of Jesus through his church by the power of the Holy Spirit. The scene. We'll pick up with chapter, uh, with verse 11 but Peter and John, it's the day of prayer. They've gone to the temple, the ninth hour. Probably going to the temple because the ninth hour is when Jesus cried out, it is finished. It meaning something to these two characters who so deeply love Jesus. And as they're making their way through the outer courts of the Gentiles, they're, they're approaching the gate called beautiful, beautiful on the east side that entered into the court of the women. And they would pass through the court of the women to get to the court of men, which is where these two Jewish men would pray. And as they're making their way through this gate, they hear a familiar voice. A man who had been lame from birth. For 40 years, we're told later on, this man had been lame. He's paralyzed. He's laying there at this gate, begging, asking for alms. And though Peter and John were familiar with this man, this was not their first rodeo, their first trip to Jerusalem, to the temple, something about this moment, the moving of the Spirit, they paused. They hear the man crying out, and we're told that Peter kind of like turns and locks in his focus, beelines, right to the man. Obviously, the Spirit's speaking, the Spirit's moving. Peter and John get up to the man, and the man's asking for money, but the response is interesting. Peter says, silver and gold I don't have for you. But, this is what I have, in the name of Jesus, rise and walk. Now, this is a packed place. The, the whole temple's filled with those that are also going to the ninth hour for prayer. 
And as Peter says, gives this man an impossible command, everyone pauses. Everyone focuses in. What will happen? There's a wait. Eyes are looking at Peter. The eyes are looking at this man. And we're told that Peter gets a little impatient with the process. Realizing that the man's not immediately jumping up, river dancing around the temple, Peter's like, desperate times call for desperate measures, and I am going to do something about this. And so Peter does what anyone would do with a handicapped man that you've commanded to rise up and walk who's not rising up and walk. Peter assaults him. He reaches down and he grabs him violently, and he's like kicking out his legs. He's like, dude, you're walking. And immediately we're told at that point, what happens? The man regains his strength and he walks. It's an incredible scene. We're told that the lame man in verse 8 was leaping up and he stood and he walked and he entered the temple with him, walking and leaping and praising God. I'm sure he was praising God. A man who had never gone beyond the gate called Beautiful is now allowed to enter. He's been healed and all of the people saw him walking and praising God and they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened. And now verse 11, we're told that the lame man who was healed... He held on. You could translate held on as kung fu grip. Like he grabbed on to Peter and John and he's not gonna let them go. He's rolling with them. And we're told that all of the people ran together to Peter and John and the lame man who are now in the porch, which is called Solomon's. And they're all greatly amazed. So Peter saw it and he responded to the people. Now in response to this man's supernatural healing. He joins Peter and John as they continue through the court of the women into the temple. He's holding on to Peter and John. He's walking, he's leaping, he's praising God. The scene undoubtedly drew the attention of everyone in the temple. Everyone had passed by the lame man is now seeing this man walking and jumping and dancing as a staple in the temple scene. The crowd that witnessed the miracle, well, they're filled with wonder and amazement, but it would also seem from the way that Luke sets up the the text that a crowd now is gravitating to this commotion. So the people that are present that see it with their own eyes are just awestruck. But then word begins to circulate throughout the temple precincts and people start flooding in. They ran to meet them. Luke tells us, that when Peter saw it, that he responded to the people. And what was it that Peter saw that would demand he respond? We'll see here in the rest of the text a second sermon that Peter will teach. But why? What did he see that demanded a response? Well, from the context established by Luke, it would appear that the misguided attention that Peter and John were receiving because of the miracle is what demanded they respond. So everyone's looking at Peter and John and the lame man. They're looking at the lame man, back to John and Peter. Like they're associating these two men with the miracle. And Peter sees this, that there's a wonderment, that there's an amazement, that people are inspired. And that he finds himself, Peter and John themselves, at the center and the focus. Everyone is attributing the miracle to these two men. And understand that this moment, is the most dangerous moment for Peter and for the life of this budding church. It's the most dangerous moment in Peter's life 
Peter. There's no doubt that he had been Jesus's instrument, led by the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit, equipped with a gift of faith for the moment. He was God's instrument, Jesus's hands and feet, to heal this man, this lame man. But here's the question. Would now, in this moment, would Peter take credit for the work? Would he bask in the glory, or would he use the opportunity to glorify Christ? He really had three options. I mean, if you break it down, if you look at it logically, first, Peter could have stood up and said, yeah, check me out. Got a new name tag. First it was apostle, now miracle worker. Launching my whole new ministry. And there's John handing out flyers. Peter's wiping sweat, throwing out the rags. You know, I mean, like in this moment, here he is. And it could have been a me, 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 me moment. I mean, let's be honest, Peter had always played second fiddle to Jesus. He had never really been in the spotlight other than a sermon that he taught, but he had just performed a miracle. And his natural tendency, his pride, would make this a real option, knowing Peter, right? Secondly, you know, Peter could have taken a different approach. Instead of being real vocal about it, he could have just kind of allowed the, the glory to be misguided. You know, that he just kind of stands there, he and John, and they're just kind of reveling in the moment. And they're just enjoying the attention. And they're not correcting anything. They're not really saying anything. They're just allowing the attention to go misguided. Like, like Peter could have just been silent. Well, he's not culpable. I mean, well, it's not my fault that they looked at me and it was all great and glorious. He could have just jumped in and taken it. But there was a third option. Peter could have used the moment to now redirect the glory, the attention, the focus to Jesus. And as we're about to see, spoiler alert, Peter will defer the glory. It was a dangerous moment. I'm sure there's a point in this where he pauses and Satan is whispering in his ear and there was an inclination, but he resists, he defers the glory and he uses now the attention brought on by this miraculous moment to be a platform for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. We continue, men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why look so intently at us? As though by our power or godliness, we have made this man walk. Peter begins with a question. Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Obviously, this being this layman being healed. And I think Peter's making two important points. He's setting some context that he will build on through the rest of his sermon. First, how is it that you marvel at this miracle, a lame man walking, when as men of Israel, you have two advantages. Like, like really, a lame man walking, that's pretty cool. But my goodness, like your heritage. Like, why would you get all bent out of shape about a lame man, a lame man getting his, like, his feet working and jumping around? Like, like, you've seen the Red Sea part. You've seen... God's presence descend on top of the mountain. You've seen the Jordan River part. You've seen uh, trumpets bring down the walls of Jericho. You've seen the sun stand still. You've seen the 10 plagues. You've seen all of these things. Like, you're men of Israel. Why would you marvel at this? I mean, really, in context, this is not that big of a deal. Secondly, for like the last three and a half years, what has Jesus been doing? Healing people like this. I mean, I can see like... Peter kind of, why do you, like, how can you marvel at this? 
kind of in disbelief. Like, really, are, are you guys that dumb? That dense? But then he also addresses now the folly of their assumption. He says, well, why do you marvel at this? And then he, he says, and now why do you look at us? Like, really? As though by our power or godliness, we did anything. I can see as Peter's continuing this, that he kind of goes from disbelief to he's chuckling. He says, I can't believe you guys are, are marveling at this. And then my goodness gracious, and he's laughing that you would think that it's my power or my godliness that caused the man to walk. Like, really? Do you know who I am? I'm Peter. Like, I'm, I'm known at this point in Scripture by more of the stupid things that I've done than the good ones. Like, like you don't know me if you think it's my godliness or by my power that this man walked. He, he's pointing out that it's a silly assumption, and he's setting the stage to explain that the miracle was a result of what? Of Jesus's power, not their godliness. Peter, Peter's nothing more than a tool. You're nothing more than a tool. And you can take that for however you want to mean it. But you're a vessel. God doesn't use you because you got anything to really offer. He uses you if you're humble and you're available and you're open. Why would you look at me? It's Jesus working through me. I love Zechariah 4, verse 6. We're told, not by might, nor by power, but how? By my spirit, says the Lord. And know his progression. As God's chosen people, you shouldn't marvel to see things like this. Come on, guys. Not to mention, like, it's silly to think that we had really anything to do with healing the man. I'm not even a doctor. But now he continues to explain why this work was done and where the power originated from. So Peter kind of gives them a backhanded slap, a rebuke, and now he sets the stage for moving forward. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, <clears throat> whom you delivered up. If you go into the Greek, you'll actually see that pause and that congestion, like emphasis. Whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when Pilate was determined to let him go, and you denied the Holy One and the just <laughs> and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. You killed the prince of life, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. Now, he starts, he, he, he references, right? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he's making it clear in referencing the patriarchs that he's speaking of the God of whom? Of the Jews, of the Hebrew people. And he also builds a bridge, doesn't he? He builds a bridge to his audience. He says, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Sorry, Muslims, not your God. On the flip side, our God, like the God of our fathers, our, he includes himself. I'm a Jew. I'm speaking of our God. I'm speaking to you. And he says that their God did what? He glorified his servant, Jesus. This, this phrase 
servant Jesus. It's an interesting phrase, and it can have really two meanings. I think both are relevant, actually. His servant was a messianic title used frequently by Isaiah the prophet. Chapter 42, chapter 49, chapter 50. The references are at c316.tv. You can look at them on your own. So it's a messianic title that Peter here is bringing to their attention, that he's emphasizing his servant, Jesus. He's telling his audience that Jesus was sent, yes, by God, the God of their fathers, but was also the Messiah prophesied to come by Isaiah to do the will and purposes of God. But the word servant also has kind of a different meaning, doesn't it? Servant is the Greek word pious, which, yes, can be translated as servant, but also can be translated as son. As a matter of fact, the, the old King James translates this verse as that God glorified his son, Jesus. Glorified. I love this word. It means to impart glory. And the verb that, that God glorified Jesus, it's in the, the active tense. It means that God has glorified Jesus. That the past tense. But then it also means that God is glorifying Jesus. The present tense, that it's, it's active. And then it means that God will always glorify Jesus, the future tense. He's kind of making the point that God glorified Jesus. I'm about to talk about what you did to him, but regardless, God has always found glory in Jesus, his servant son. But what did they do? So God sent Jesus, but what did they do? First, you delivered up Jesus, even when Pilate was determined to let him go. Peter is clear that the motivating factor behind Jesus' Roman crucifixion was the Jewish people. They couldn't blame the Romans for their act. They were guilty. The Romans were guilty. They were guilty. And then he makes an interesting observation, doesn't he? He, he affirms that Pilate was in a predicament, right? Like, this is really interesting to me. Don't, don't overlook the flow of the text. So you, hand, you delivered up Jesus to the Romans. Pilate, whom you delivered him up, he kind of was like, yeah, I want to let him go. But you were determined that that wouldn't happen. Now we kind of have to ask, or at least consider, how in the world did Peter know of the predicament that Pilate was in? I mean, this was somewhat private information. If you go back to our study through Mark, Pilate received a warning a warning from his wife that he needed to stay as far away from Jesus as possible, that he needed to get away from, from this dastardly deed that the Jews were wanting him to commit. Church history tells us that she would actually become a Christian. And one can, can wonder when that might have happened. I'm of the opinion that she converted on the day of Pentecost. And she included part of this story so that Peter could reference it. You were determined that Jesus would die. Pilate is not all to blame. As a matter of fact, he kind of really wanted to get out of it. But you were determined. And then what did they do? You denied. So you were determined to deliver up Jesus. Now you denied the Holy One and the just, choosing instead a murderer. This word denied 
is the Greek word meaning to reject or to refuse. And in recounting, recounting a story that everybody was familiar with, this story where Pilate, trying to get out of it, presents Barabbas as a Barabbas and no murderer, Jesus, who do you want me to release? And obviously they chose this murderer. And Peter's pointing out that you delivered him up and you denied him, you resisted him. You did this. And then what? You killed. It wasn't manslaughter. It wasn't accidental. It was thought out, planned, determined, you killed the prince of life. Now, this word prince, it's actually a very confusing word and how it's translated into English. It literally means chief leader or author. We think of a prince as a secondary authority to a king, but that's not what the word means at all. It means that you're the author of that thing, the chief leader of that thing. The ESV, I think, translates the word more correctly as author of life. And in using this phrase, Peter is doing what? First, Jesus is the Messiah. You killed the author of life using a phrase that could only be attributed to God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and God did what with man? formed him from the dust of the earth, and then breathed, what? Life into him. And Peter's bringing up all of this Old Testament imagery that it's not just that you, you killed a messenger sent by God, you killed God. Charles Spurgeon, in his sermon on this verse, he commented, here it may well be to say that we think that Christ is indeed the creator of all things and especially of life. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. Our Lord Jesus is particularly the creator in connection with life, and I take pleasure in thinking of all life as proceeding from him by whom all things consist. For him, the son of righteousness, every vital spark of heavenly flame has been sent forth. He is the quickening spirit, and by union with him we shall live unto God, if indeed we so live at all. I wish I could actually speak like that. That'd be pretty sweet. Now, as evidence that Jesus was indeed the servant, the holy one, the just, the author of life, Peter tells them that even after you did these things, God sent Jesus, you killed him. Even after that, who he was was validated. Because God raised him from the dead, of which we are all witnesses. I hope you kind of pick up that Peter is, for the most part, in your face. When it came to the reality of the situation. Like, he's even kind of more bold now than he was even on the day of Pentecost. His sermon is logical. It's methodical. Peter doesn't nibble around the edges of truth, nor does he soften its blows. And in pointing out the resurrected Jesus, Peter is saying, you think it's by our power or godliness that this man walked? No, let me tell you by whose power it is. You see, Peter is shifting the glory, shifting the responsibility, shifting the work off of himself and pointing to Jesus. 
He's saying that Jesus is the power behind this man walking. And in doing this, he's communicating an important principle. And don't miss this. Peter is telling them, though you rejected and killed Jesus, as demonstrated by this miracle, that could be done by no one else but Jesus, he is still willing to work in your midst. Like, it's an interesting transition. You were determined to hand him to Pilate. You denied him. You killed him. God raised him from the dead. And Jesus isn't bitter about it. As a matter of fact, if it's Jesus' power that caused this man to walk, that Jesus is still willing to work in your lives. That's what, that's what Peter's saying here. And he continues. He says, verse 16, and his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know, yes, the faith which comes through him, capital H, has given him, lowercase h, this man, perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Peter says that the power behind his command, rise up and walk, was found how? It was found in his name. And even back in verse 6, Peter had given the command how? In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Understand to do something in Jesus' name means that you are acting in Jesus' authority, by Jesus' heart, and on Jesus' behalf. Be careful when you act in Jesus' name. Peter instructed the man to get up, not in his authority, not in his power, but invoking the name of Jesus. Peter is saying that it was in his name that the authority was given, that the power was demonstrated for this man to be healed. I had nothing to do with it. And then Peter affirms, so he's saying, my command was in Jesus' name. And then he affirms that the lame man was not healed because of his goodness, nor was he healed because of, of, of Peter and John's goodness, power or ability, but rather that the man was healed for one reason and one reason alone. Did you pick it up? That he was healed, why? Because he placed his faith in Jesus. Now, it was an itty-bitty-weeny kind of faith. There wasn't much faith. Like, it was the kind of faith that, that really needed a friend to come by and, and pick him up, push him forward. But it was still faith. And it was still faith in Jesus that healed him. And it's interesting to me. Look at the progression. Peter gave the command by his faith in Jesus. The man was healed because of his faith in Jesus. And yet, Peter is clear that all of the faith for this miracle came how? Came through him. Faith through him. Faith in him. Faith by him. Kind of like maybe faith's a big deal it kind of explains why the author of Hebrews says in chapter 12, verse 12, that Jesus is what? He is not only the author, but what? But the finisher of our faith. Peter, as we progress through the sermon, he's thrown down the gauntlet. He's dropped the mic. 
God sent him. You killed him. God resurrected him. And Jesus still wants to work in your lives. And the mechanism for this work will be by faith. Yet now, brethren, I know, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did also your rulers, but those things which God foretold by the mouth of his prophets, of all of his prophets, that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Now, brethren, like, it's ringing out, this rebuke, this whole thing. Like, he's letting it sink in, the preacher. And then he breathes for a moment, maybe takes a swig of water. And he comes back. You can see him reaching this crescendo, his voice reaching a, a fevered pitch. And then he breathes for a moment. And his tone softens as he says, now, brethren. You can't help but sense a tenderness there, right? But now, my brothers. Like he's identifying with his audience, isn't he? He's sympathizing with his audience. And he says, I know, I know that you did what you did in ignorance. This word ignorance means to lack knowledge of the divine things because of a moral blindness. Peter is saying to them, literally, you acted because you didn't know any better. Sin and pride and rebellion and ego had so clouded our ability to see or to know. And we did this without fully grasping the ramifications of it. And we have to kind of ask, how did Peter know? I mean, Peter is appealing now to not just an action, but the motivation behind an action. He's saying, you did what you did but you did it in ignorance, a blindness. You didn't fully know what you were doing. And how did he know that their actions were the result of an ignorance? Well, I think first, he mentions the first way that he was aware of it, and that's a scripture foretold that these things would happen because of ignorance. Those things that God foretold by the mouth of his prophets, he has fulfilled. So scripture's like, you're gonna act ignorantly. It's foretold. Secondly, Jesus affirmed their ignorance, didn't he? From the cross, Luke, chapter 23, verse 34, what did Jesus say? Jesus said, Father, rain down fire and brimstone and destroy them all. No, he said, Father, forgive them. And why? He qualifies it, right? For they know not what they do. So scripture said that they would act in ignorance and Jesus affirmed it from the cross. But you know, I have to imagine that Peter knew that they acted out of ignorance, blinded by pride and sin, for he was guilty of the same crime. You denied him and so did I. You turned your back on him and so did I. I'm just as guilty. Now, I want to make a side point, and I'm not going to elaborate on it. But sometimes we're hesitant to, to call out sin if that sin is something we've been guilty of in the past. Like, like sometimes, and I'll find this, that, that, that a man who's, who's in a former life 
of sin, committed adultery, and was just not the husband that he needed to be. And God restores his life and does a great thing that he's the one that's really hesitant to, to call out a young man. Because he's like, how can I call out that young man? I, I'm guilty of that. Peter was guilty of denying Jesus. But he still called him out. You see, just because you might be guilty of the same act of sin, as long as you've repented and been restored, it doesn't mean your moral responsibility to speak out against that sin has been negated. If that were the case, we couldn't speak out on any sin. <laughs> you would be hypocritical for your kids getting in trouble for lying. Well, how can I spank my kids if they're lying? Because I'm a liar. Well, how can you do anything? Why do you make them eat their vegetables? Like, we don't act in that way. Like, we, we have a moral authority, a moral place. But also note that ignorant actions produced by sin do not remove an individual's culpability for these ignorant actions. You did what you did in ignorance, but that doesn't mean you're off the hook. Like, as a matter of fact, God will still hold us to account for every sin, even sin done through ignorance. It continues that though you're guilty, you're sinners. There is a remedy. He says, verse 19, repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. The remedy for sin, repent and be converted. Now, now we've, we've addressed this concept of repentance before, the, the, a, a, willingness, a willingness to change the mind so that it produces a change of direction. But what's new is actually the idea of conversion, to convert. This is the first time you find this word in Scripture, at least in regards to the context of the salvation message. Repent and convert. This word, be converted, in the Greek, it means to turn as into the true worship of the true God. And by invoking this in context of the sermon, Peter's saying something very significant. He's telling them that because God sent Jesus and they rejected Jesus, they were actually rejecting whom? God. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And note who he's talking to. Peter is speaking to a group of deeply religious men who were in the temple to pray to God. And he's telling them that because they rejected Jesus, they'd separated and alienated themselves from the very God they had come to pray to. Basically, what you're doing is meaningless because you rejected Jesus and you rejected God. You're not going to bypass Jesus to get to God. You need to repent to change your mind concerning Christ and then convert or to return to the God you've rejected. And he explains for us the benefits of conversion. He says first that you are what? Sins may be blotted out. The idea of sins being blotted out, it doesn't speak to the concept that something is erased or like whited out. Rather, it speaks to a permanent and complete removal. May be blotted out in the Greek literally means to wipe off. You see, in today's world, our ink 
possesses a certain kind of, uh, of an acetone to it so that when you write ink on a piece of paper, the acid is actually etching the ink into the page, which means that you can't erase it. You can try to white it out. There's nothing you can do to actually remove it. You might not even be able to see it, but there are all different ways that we have scientifically to be able to still see what was written. Once you write with ink that has an acid to it, it's there forever, always. So the idea of being blotted out doesn't mean that you erase it or white it out. It means that you remove it. You see, in ancient times, ink was not the same way. Ink didn't have an acid to it, which means that when you would write on a papyrus, you could literally take a dampened cloth and wipe away anything that was written on it. It was a permanent, complete, total removal. For those of you that are thinking, does ink really do that? You can go to the app and there's a link where you can read up on ink. I know some of you are thinking that. I do my research and I'm sharing it. So to wipe off, it means to completely remove. Please note, Christianity is not a betterment program. Coming to Christ doesn't yield a re-edit to your present story. Jesus doesn't erase what was, rather he removes all that was. And he starts writing a new book upon conversion. That's where when the Bible says old things have passed away, all things have become new. When the Bible says that God casts our sin as far as the east is to the west, that he remembers it not. It's gone, period. It's complete, which makes sense because biblical phrases like new birth, being born again, newness of life, all speak to the fundamental and permanent transformation that occurs when you repent and convert. And what is Peter speaking to? What sin is Peter speaking to? You see, to me, that is amazing. Because if the sin of killing Jesus can be blotted out, removed, forgiven, then really there is nothing that you can do to separate yourself from the love of God. And if this wasn't an incredible enough, at the end of the sermon, along the same thread, Peter will say that God, having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you and turning away every one of you from your iniquities so that your sins may be blotted out and that every one of you may be turned from your iniquities. This word iniquities, it speaks of our evil purposes. The word speaks of our twisted, our bent nature, the very nature that leads us to sin, <laughs> which is great because Jesus came not only to wipe away our sins, to blot them out, but he also came to turn us away from our iniquities that Jesus came to give us, to equip us through his spirit, new desires, not for sin, but for godliness not for wickedness, but for righteousness, new desires and new motivations. Do I still sin? Yes, but that's not what I want to do. I have a new passion, a new purpose. And who turns you away from your sin? You? 12 steps, AA? No. Who turns you away? Well, the answer is Jesus. Jesus will turn you away from your iniquities. And this means, and I love it, that you don't have to clean yourself up to come to Jesus. Like some people fall into the trap of like, yeah, I gotta get my junk together and then I'll come to Jesus. I gotta clean it all up and then I'll come. Now Jesus wants to clean you 
and restore you and fix you and make you totally new. Like you don't have to do anything but just come to repent, convert, and allow him to work all things new. But we're also told that another byproduct, right, of repentance and conversion is that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Consider life, the life of sin in the world, a life where you're running from the God that made you, rejecting a Savior who wants to liberate you, resisting the Spirit, telling you there's something better. This life, of which many of us have, have experienced, how, what does it produce? It produces tiredness, doesn't it? That you're burned out, bummed out, burdened, exhausted. But when you stop running from God, and when you submit to the moving of the Spirit, and when you come to Jesus, when you repent and are converted, Jesus not only gives you a life eternally, but he gives you a life today. That Jesus is always there to do what? To provide a person refreshing. Man, do we ever need more and more refreshing. The phrase, it's in the plural tense, meaning that we're constantly afforded from Jesus what? Refreshing how? Joy over circumstances. Peace that passes understanding. A love unknown. And he continues in that he may send Jesus Christ, who has preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all of his holy prophets since the world began. I'm going to skim through this other than just to say the second sermon of the church focused on the second coming of Jesus. I find that pretty cool and a rebuke for a lot of people within the church. Verse 22 for Moses. Truly said to the fathers, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you, and it shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Yes, and all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow, as many have spoken, foretold these days, you are sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Speaking of the Messiah to come through the Hebrew people. To you first, God having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you and turning away every one of you from your iniquities. And Peter closes with a warning. You rejected Jesus, handed him over, you killed him. It's a bummer. One would think Jesus might hold a grudge, but he doesn't. Jesus is still willing to work as demonstrated by what he did to this man. But you have a decision to make. The only way you can experience a healing from Jesus is by faith in him. And faith will demonstrate itself when we repent and when we come to him. And from that repentance and from that conversion, our sins are blotted out, our iniquities are turned away. And, and what happens then? We are filled with refreshing, times of refreshing. But thirdly, the third result of repentance and conversion is that we will be spared future judgment. You see, Peter saying, what you do now will have a profound determination 
upon your eternal destiny. Make his argument, he, he points to Deuteronomy 18. Moses predicted, prophesied that a prophet would come to judge the world. And Moses makes it clear how humanity responded to this prophet would have a major implication on their future judgment. He says, and it shall be that every soul who will not hear the prophet shall what? Be utterly destroyed. You see, in conclusion, where Peter leaves it, where we'll leave it, it's judgment. Judgment of sin, judgment of rebellion, but the judgment of the rejection of Jesus. And Peter, the most dominant word that you find in his sermon, you can go back and look at it, the, pro- the most predominant word is you. You. You did this. You did this. You did this. You. It's not your spouse. It's not your kids. It's not the Jews. It's not the Romans. It's not some old people. You. Because you. And I think that this is strategic by the Holy Spirit because what Peter is saying applies to you. To each person. To each one of us. For everyone. God sent Jesus. To whom? To you. But if you're still refusing to repent and be converted, as Peter says, you're alienating yourself from God and will one day face a judgment. And so, Father, we just let that word ring out. 